This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. Hey there, this is Ross Rice, and you're listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Caruso. Today on Songwriter Stories, we dig down deep into the cosmic mind and earthy power funk of songwriter and human radio co-founder, Ross Rice. Let's listen. Rice, welcome to Songwriter Stories. Ah, good to be here. I learned from your email when we were setting this up that you're now a full-time professor teaching songwriting workshop. I'm actually the lecturer and I'm teaching the audio classes, um, beginning audio and intermediate. Basically, they've just built this, a new uh, studio there, uh, the Haas Media Lab, which is actually on the cover of Mix Magazine this uh, month, I might add. Uh, but it's a nice little break in there that, that uh, Stephen Storick designed this uh, nice little room for this there. So I'm teaching uh, people how to record and how to mix uh, in that room. Plus, uh, on top of that, I teach uh, a class for first years, basically, about uh, songwriting. It's more of a songwriting workshop. And I've also had 28 people from all around the world that have very, very different ideas of what songwriting should be. So 
what's interesting is that there's just a lot of most of the class is just listening, discussing, a lot of encouragement, and you know, trying to fix some problems. But some of this stuff turns out really quite remarkable. And when you have people signing up, you don't know their level of experience, how many songs they've written, whether they're just lyricists, whether they're musicians, what type of music they listen to, and whether your examples are going to land for them and things like that. So that's a really hard but also super enjoyable thing. And I think once they're in front of you, don't you find that it's easier to figure out your line of attack? Well, yeah, I, I, I do a, a questionnaire before the class even starts, so I know what everybody's likes and dislikes are, so I, I already know kind of what I can pull out that someone's going to go, oh, yeah, I know about that. So, <laughs> so I kind of cheat a little bit on that. But I also, most of the stuff I talk about with songwriting is general, and these are all first years. So I, one of the first classes, I was showing them as an example of a really great song. I gave them Bonnie Raitt's I Can't Make You Love Me. And I played them the tune and I showed them the lyrics and I just said, you know, the reason why I, I think the song is great is because it encapsulates this moment so perfectly. Uh, and, and I looked at them and they're looking at me like, these kids never, they don't know what it's like to, be, you know, be laying next to somebody who doesn't love them next, you know, this is like way <laughs> ahead of where they're at in, in their personal experience thing. So I got sort of blank stares and I, I realized then that the best thing I could do is actually make them do presentations about songs that they liked and sort of and then explain to me why they consider these to be great songs and then we can have a discussion. So I've been actually learning a lot about, you know, newer acts that I'm, I wasn't aware of either. That's probably better for me than for them, actually. That's awesome. Very recently, I was setting up for a songwriting class and a woman approached me and she was asking about what I do. And she said, well, well can talent be taught? And I said, you know, it's not really about teaching talent. It's about teaching the craft. There's, there's a lot of craft involved and help you get inspire people and help them find their inspiration. All of the students I have, they're, um, they're all pretty much engineering students. Mm. They're not like the students I was teaching at MTSU in Middle Tennessee who are actually thinking more professionally. Th these are our, our, our freshmen, mostly, that are our engineering students. And, and some of them write some nice songs uh, for hobbies. And some of them are just thinking, hey, I need to take one of these classes in songwriting workshops. Seems like a pretty chill way through this semester here so. But I make them write a song a week, and all of a sudden they realize about four weeks in that that's, that's, that's not as easy as they thought it was. But the thing is that they all have something interesting to say and always have some kind of a, a quality, even the ones that really have just the most basic, basic skills with this. There's always growth. They're always showing some growth with this because there's always something they find that they can improve about it, and especially when they hear everybody else's songs and they realize, well, we're all kind of in the same boat here. We can, we can all push forward. I didn't expect a lot, but I, I've been really super impressed and surprised, especially with a handful of the students who are just amazing. Have you found that it has inspired you? Has it made you write more? Well, yeah, it's making me get it. You know, I have to sort of practice what I preach here because, you know, I spend actually an entire two classes talking about entry points to songwriting, how to get started, just, you know, just to get a reason just to even get, a, get some kind of a, a spark or something. And I realize also, I've also been on somewhat on songwriting sabbatical here. I actually went straight from getting my Master's of Fine Arts at MTSU straight into working almost, almost immediately. So I haven't really had a much time to really sit and think about, about writing songs other than preparing for songwriting class. <laughs> when did you get that? I got my MFA uh, this summer, 2019. Oh, great. So after the Samsara album. Yeah, Samsara was more like 2017. I, I worked on that just as I was starting my process of getting MFA. Uh, they overlapped somewhat. Well, Samsara was also, I didn't do all the writing. I wrote the lyrics. I didn't do all the music writing like I used to. Um, that was more of a band effort. So. Okay. Well, we're going to get into that in, in great detail. Let's start at the beginning where you 
co-founded a five-piece band in 1988, if I have that right? That's correct. Called Human Radio. Ross Rice, is it Kai Kennedy? Kai Kennedy, yep. Steve Eby, Steve Arnold. That's correct. And is this Peter Herka? That's correct. You got it. This album was produced by David Kahn and David... Leonard. Leonard, thank you. It's the first thing I listened to by you, and I noticed that uh, you have this really strong vocal, especially when you're up in the high range. You can do both a falsetto or a high growl that's, you know, strong. So... Lots of good stuff there. It kind of reminded me of Andrew Sturmer, the lead vocalist for Jellyfish. Oh, you're too kind. You like him? Oh, yeah, he's great. He's a b- way above me. I don't, I don't consider myself in the league with Andy. He's great. My, I think my falsetto is kind of good, but my upper full range, it's always been a constant battle. <laughs> well, I love it. I noticed a lot of stacked chords, which we'll talk about how that, how that works. I thought your music sounded like earthy funk. The lyrics are frequently cosmic and full of big ideas. And Wikipedia says your related bands are Steely Dan, Sly and the Family Stone, Frank Zappa, and XTC. How does that sound to you? We caught into those bands a lot. We liked them quite a bit, actually. In fact, we listed them in great detail on the cover of the record. <laughs> it listed everything that we all thought was cool, you know, that we all agreed on. But the one thing that was kind of interesting about Human Radio is that we could make a list like that that all five of us agreed on. We could hardly ever figure out where to eat any given night. <laughs> I mean, we weren't argumentative, but we all had very strong opinions, very you know, strong personalities in the group. So it was an interesting mix of people. And I think those, those were touchstones for us and definitely bands that we were influenced by. And um, the lyrics were pretty topical, I guess, I suppose, at the time. There was this real tendency for me, and I wrote the lyrics because I'll cop to it. There was just this net tendency I was thinking, well, all the great love songs have been written, so I'm going to write about stuff. <laughs> If you're going to write about stuff, then you've got to write about stuff that pisses you off. So, and so then all of a sudden you become, right. you start sort of creating catalogs of things that sort of upset and, and provoke me. And I realized over time that for a period of time that those were interesting for me. But then I, I would say half of those tunes, they seem a little bit too on the nose for me. I, I was not very good at sort of couching my ideas and punches. I pretty much just took the glove off and, and smacked around. I didn't really have a lot of finesse. So. They're playful still, like even when you're angry. There's a playfulness about it. We liked Hunter S. Thompson. I don't, I don't know that show very much, but he was a lot angrier than I was. I'll say that. So. Yep. So how would you describe the difference between a human radio album and a Ross Rice solo album? Or why would you do one and not the other? Well, human radio has, we wanted to write in certain ways that worked for the strengths of the members of the band. Even though in the beginning, even though I wrote a lot of the material, it was really very much written and designed. You know, it was like, well, what, what's Kai going to kind of think he's going to do? What's the sort of thing Peter would do? I, there was definitely always the idea of who are these people playing the music and what are they going to do about it? That wasn't necessarily a restriction for me. That was sort of a playground for me. But then when it came to doing my own stuff, I realized I also wanted to be a little more personal. There was a sort of a clever quirkiness that was, we, we got hit by those words quite a bit with that band. Um, and for a while, I sort of took it as a badge of honor. And then over time, it, I didn't feel that way quite, quite much about it. But that was still something we couldn't help ourselves. We had a certain sense of humor about what we did, a certain kind of angle to things. Anything that was sort of grand and, or sort of larger themes had to sort of be more human radio for me. And then my personal stuff is a lot more about what I was thinking about. It didn't necessarily you know, reflect anybody else's thoughts about my own. 
Yeah, that, I guess that's really the main difference. Since you're the songwriter, and you come up with most of the music and the lyrics, and yet these five guys end up with these arrangements that are really intricate, um, they had to either have input or they had to be told exactly what to do. For the most part, the, there was a lot of input, um, although there was a handful of tunes that I, when I demoed them, again, I, I sort of designed parts that were pretty much designed for them, and they pick it up. Oh, that's, you know, it's like I made a nice shirt for them, and they tried it on said that looks fabulous and, they, and it worked so and then they made some their own adjustments to it also on top of that though I'll ha- i will have to say that on that first record we pre-produced it pretty heavily with david and, and david especially david khan david khan that was his sort of forte was to really get with the band and get everything fairly well into place before we even went into the studio even got close to it a lot of the uh, extra intricacies and also making sure that some of the tunes were trimmed you know, there was a whole other verse on another planet that had to be trimmed. Uh, and uh, thank goodness for that. And so, the, so a lot of the things were tightened up. We were a little bit woolier, I think, before um, we got to Dave, and then he sheared us a little bit more nicely and then made a nice coat for us. So Sweet. Me and Elvis landed at number 32 on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. It has a style change-up in it, so it starts out in one style and then it changes styles. Me and Elvis used to have a good time We cash in all our coke bottles to buy a coat of wine Me and Elvis would ride out to the park Smoke his daddy's cigarettes and come home after dark Yeah. Me and Elvis used to really rock and roll We liked to crank up our guitars and then we'd really lose control yeah. Me and Elvis would ride our motorbikes We used to always skip school We did just what we liked Me and Elvis Elvis and I It's kind of the odd man out when you compare it to the other human radio album songs. It would sound more at home maybe on a Hooters album. <laughs> Do you remember them? Oh, yeah, sure. So was this your highest charting song? Yeah, and that was uh, our only charting song. The interesting thing about that is that that song was actually written, of course, more as a joke tune and up-tempo, kind of a, a joke thing. And then David Kahn decided that it was more of a meditation about the, the state of rock and roll and sort of turned it into a bit larger sort of thing. We actually had a second single that was uh, ready to go with, with My First Million. When I make my first million, I think I'll buy myself some happiness. If they sale on satisfaction, I might just have to stock up. Maybe I'll buy myself some muscles in a California lifestyle. An irresponsible Ferrari, an ex-cheerleader to knock up. We even had a video that we okayed. There was a budget actually approved for it, and we were going to go with that. It was testing top five phones everywhere they tested that tune um, in all over the country in different markets. Just before that was all going to happen, um, Don Einer, who was the, the president of Columbia Records, finally got to see the band, which was actually an inherited band for him because we were signed under Yetnikoff just before that transition. He finally got to see the band at the Roadhouse in New York City and was not terribly knocked out by the curtain. <laughs> so uh, all of a sudden, all these best laid plans for the second single, which was, again, was promising to be quite a, make, make a pretty good transition, fell by the wayside, which this sort of thing happens to a lot of bands, apparently. Well, it happens to TV shows, too. Yeah, it happens to everybody eventually. So. The suits change chairs. 
And uh, the new person comes in and says, this isn't what I want for my legacy. And my name's going on it. So yeah, at the same time as, as upsetting as that may be, you can't really blame them. They didn't see it, didn't feel it. And that was pretty much the beginning of the end for us with them. Very shortly after that, we were offered the opportunity to fire away out of the second record, which we took because there wasn't a future for this there at that point. Well, let's talk about a couple of the songs. I Don't Want to Know, the verses arranged around a two-measure arpeggiated bass riff. And it has these, what I call, stacked chords. I'm going to bring that up more than once. When I say stacked chords, you seem to have a chord that's on top of another chord. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. This is, well, it's, it's what I call the Todd Rundgren trick, which is something I discovered early on. And a lot of piano players did. I think piano players discover this more often than guitar players do. But the, just the simple fact that all of a sudden when you play a major chord over a different bass note, all of a sudden you get these different things happening. And when that, sure. I discovered that along with another billion other piano players. When I sort of discovered that, I just thought that was, you know, playing a C over an F made me feel good inside hearing an F major nine chord. So yeah, the major nine and minor nines are a huge part of my, my chordal vocabulary. And I'm, I'm sure if you've noticed that, if you've listened to it. Yeah. It's definitely above the seventh. Yeah. I'm, I'm big on those. That's the, they just please me. And uh, a lot of it, I think, has to do with just, they're just at a richness that are, are along the harmonic series. I like my, my share of, um, of discord now and then. I'll sit at home and just play a major nine chord just to just get soothed, just to feel better about life. <laughs> there are a lot of different synth sounds on this album and on this song. What kind of synths did you use on the first Human Radio album? Was it something in the studio or something you owned? One of the things we used that became something that I did own is that uh, David, David Kahn, that is, had keyboard day for me. So he got all his keyboard stuff and just piled it all up in there. And, and I just was a kid in a candy store for a couple of days, which is great fun, I, will, I must say. One of the items was a Proteus, an Emu Proteus. Ah. It just come out. So we managed to get a lot of sounds from it. So I just, just I figured, well, I'll just get one so I can sort of uh, keep those sounds for the live thing. Uh, and the M1 was fairly recent at that point. So there was a bunch of stuff from the M1, the Korg M1, which was a very, very popular keyboard at not too shortly thereafter. I didn't actually have one of those. My operating rig was a, a JP800 Roland, basically with that with the Proteus. And that was pretty much what I used for live. That was enough synthesizer for me with, with the five-man outfit that we had, because I also had, a, I had an electric violin here. I didn't really need to do a lot of string work or anything. So most of the keyboards for human radios landed in, in sort of a, a middle area that sort of made room for everybody else. These are the days. The chorus reminds me of the bridge section to Billy Joel's Angry Young Man. These are the days. I wish I'd been an astronaut instead. These are the days. I wish I'd stayed in bed. That's a fun lyric, too. Anything you want to say about that song? 
that was my uh, my little Stevie Wonder attempt there in solo. Love it. It's funny how I'll do something like that and then say, oh, you know, you just totally cop Stevie Wonder. Said, no way. And then they'll play. I go, oh, totally way, man. <laughs> I'm going to steal from someone. I got to steal from the best, right? That's right. I feel good about that song in general because it's the ones that happen quickly that are always the ones I like the most. And that one was, was just a pretty much popped out one afternoon, sitting on the porch, playing the guitar, single tune. And it just sort of came out almost completely. It was one of those magic moments. It started out a little bit sequency sounding. On keyboard day, we actually did a little sequencing thing where we were going to do a little uh, sort of an ostinato sort of string part to have Peter play against and sort of kind of thing. And we had that uh, sequence, and then all of a sudden we were just playing spin the dial with the with I believe a Kurzweil module, and it landed on acoustic bass. Mm. And all of a sudden we had this real punching, this punching sound that all of a sudden made the track kind of go. Whoa, and we all got our, our, our guts rearranged a little bit and felt kind of cool about that and decided to keep it. So Sweet. One of the things I will say about uh, the Human Radio record and about David Kahn is that there was a lot of opportunities for just weird little accidents like that to happen that we took advantage of. There was, there was a lot of pre-production, but then there was a fairly good amount of, let's, let's see what happens. If we have to do something here. Just, just go, hit the red button and just play. There was, there was a fair amount of that for that record. Happy accidents. Yeah, I got to have them. Human Radio 2 is a collection of demos or songs that were almost finished or finished, but they just didn't get released as a collection. That was at the point with the band where we, were, uh, we had just lost the Columbia thing, but we thought we might be able to make a lateral move over to A&M Records because the guy that signed us at Columbia was all of a sudden over there, and he wanted to see if we couldn't follow him over there. And so we were working on a lot of demos, and we were working on those in Nashville around the same time that we had uh, Will Owsley and Ben Folds around here bunch of pop guys running around Nashville. We were, we were sort of in that little cadre. A lot of these were worked out at Sony Tree. It was my opportunity to produce the, the band as well, because sort of, I'd, I'd learned a lot about it, production, obviously, from the first record from those guys. and thought, well, I, can, I know these guys better than they do, and I can probably get better stuff out of them. And Although I didn't know nearly much about making records, but I felt like the second batch was a pretty good batch. I felt like we had a pretty strong group of songs to, to, to try to get another deal. But one of the things that, of course, happens when you're no longer with a major label like Columbia is all of a sudden other labels that look at you go, well, we kind of like you and everything. But what, if Columbia couldn't do it, what makes you think we can do it? So there was a, we were a little bit of a damaged goods band at that point. So it was kind of hard to, to get, the, get, get the momentum going back again. So we, this record sort of was our, our attempt at getting another deal. Uh, and when that didn't happen, then um, we lasted a few months after that and decided that we needed to you know, maybe not keep doing that anymore. So. It was more of a permanent hiatus. <laughs> yeah, right. Over the following, I don't know, 15 years or so, we got together maybe three times and, and did some gigs, but they called them sort of reunions. But really, for the most part, we, we were done at that point. Well, while all this is going on, in 1991, Susanna Hoffs puts out an album called When You're a Boy, which had a couple of singles, My Side of the Bed and Unconditional Love. And David Kahn, being one of your first producers, produced the album and co-wrote a few of the songs. And he was the producer of the first Bangles album in 1984, and you co-wrote the second song on the album, No Kind of Love, with Hoffs, David Kahn, and Scott Cutler. 
never thought you'd feel this way To act like I was born to suffer What was that you tried to say? You take a girl and try to love her Step right up, you act so clean Just a voice on your So did David bring you in on that project? Yeah, that was kind of a nice moment because uh, it was fairly soon after we finished the, the Human Radio record. And David and I, had a, we had a really good relationship. I mean, I learned a lot, a lot from him and he was, uh, he was really, you know, I think he liked the band quite a bit, actually. But anyways, he, there, there was something he liked about my, in my lyric style that he thought could maybe help Susanna out a little bit. So uh, I got to, to come out to Los Angeles for about a week and hang out and it was a really great experience because the main thing was is that Susanna was just a delightful person. She was a really great hang, a really nice person to work with. I can't really say enough nice things about Susanna. I was really more or less called in to help with lyrics specifically. Um, I wasn't really there for helping with music. They, were, they had that pretty well covered. Did you song doctor existing lyrics or did you bring a whole lyric or how did it work? I pretty much created whole lyrics from, from the cloth. Um, Basically, while we were in the process of working on those tunes and those two particular tunes, and there was actually two other ones that we worked on that I guess didn't get finished, but uh, those were the two that that they did sort of clue in on that we that I was a part of the working team on. For the most part, I, I was just there with a pad of paper, and while they were hammering out some some ideas and stuff, and you know just throwing some lyrical ideas in, into the mix, and then I, I you know I took the stuff later and tried to to rewrite it. There was another tune that um, I tried to rewrite with Rusty Anderson that was also working on some of, some of those tunes as well. But I would say on those tunes I was the primary lyric guy. Um, one thing that David liked to do clue in was that it, it sounds really good when Susanna sings the word boy. So I was like, wow, you know, I know you mentioned it, you got something there. So <laughs> in 1994. Adrian Ballou had an album called Here, and you co-wrote a song called I See You. His vocal style has some similar qualities to yours. And I could picture you singing this song. Oh, yeah. What was the di division of labor on this one? This was interesting because Adrian came and saw the band in, in, in Memphis. He had got a hold of a uh, recording through a mutual friend and was really interested in, in producing our second record. In fact, we went up to Lake Geneva to work with him on some stuff and, and to sort of see if it was going to be a, a good match. And, and it was. We didn't necessarily come up with the re any recordings we could use, but we had a, a lot of fun working with them and realized that we were on the same wavelength. That didn't come to pass, but um, one of the things that happened later was that when he was working on the Here record, he's, and he's not one that usually calls for backup, he decided to have me come up and spend a week with him up in Lake Geneva and work with him on some stuff over at his home studio and just you know bounce some ideas around. 
I mean, it was kind of a big deal for me because I was such a huge fan of his. I was a big King Crimson fan and, and Frank Zappa fan and, and Talking Heads fan. And so, yeah, I mean, I knew who Adrian Ballou was. You know, it was kind of one of those moments where I was, you know, here I am with kind of a musical hero of mine and just sitting across from him and we're just talking about music and working on this, these songs. Over the course of that time, we, we came up with pretty much four tunes with some basic lyrics, uh, melodies and everything kind of worked out, chord structures and stuff. And then we were going to then divide the labor up in terms of lyrics. We were going to then each pick two and, and finish two songs lyrically. So he got that one, which was actually the best one of the bunch, of course, but he got the good. <laughs> so we worked separately for a while and I wrote my tunes and he wrote his tunes. Um, and then that one sort of turned out pretty good. What was funny though, is that I didn't realize we were out of touch for a long time and I didn't realize that he was, had, was working on it. So I actually wrote a whole set of lyrics to that tune. And then when I contacted him, he, he was like, well, I, I already wrote, the, wrote it and <laughs> it's, I'm putting it on the record. I said, oh, really? So, so we compared the lyrics and the funny thing about it was, well, we pretty much knew we were going to have it. I see you everywhere I go. That was the, the line that we did agree was going to happen. But all my lyrics were about running around the United States of America. And uh, I see you everywhere I go. And all of his were about running around the world. And uh, actually made a video. So it's kind of cool. One of the four songs made it to the album, right? Yeah, yeah. So what happened to the other three? Are they still floating around somewhere? Or? I think they're probably sitting on cassettes somewhere in both of our collections, uh, unknown and, and dusted up. I, I don't know. I'm going to have to go and pull those back out and see if I like them or not. <laughs> so maybe they'll be worth using again. They could be. 1995, you started a collaboration with Brad Jones. He did an album called Guilt Flake. He was a guest on our show, and our listeners are huge fans of his. You guys wrote three songs together. Two of them ended up on his album, mm -hmm. and all three of them ended up on your first album. The 1995 album was his album, and in 1997, you did Umteen. I noticed you both do the false start at the intro on Miss July. <laughs> Is that more his song and you're covering it or is that a co-writing, you know, half and half thing and you just liked that intro a lot and you wanted to do it that way? And yes to all of that, actually. That tune turned out to be a complete division of labor that I wrote the music, he wrote the lyrics. That's Miss okay. July is and that is probably the only song that I have ever done that with, with anybody. But yeah, I wrote the music, he wrote the lyrics that tune and also dig down deep those were actually demos for me because that's how i met brad was that i had a, um, a publishing deal with sony tree around that time so I, I had a little bit of a budget to make demos so uh, i was allowed uh 300 per demo so i, or I think three or 350 something like that rather than spend those over at the studio at tree i'll spend those over at alex the great on brad because i like brad a lot and alex the great is his studio yeah and they had just finished the main part of the studio uh, with Wayne Kramer who had been in there work doing uh, hmm. from MC5. But yeah, it was a very cool space. And so I was doing my demos over there and then that sort of turned into him and me working on some songs together. And I knew about Guilt like he was working on that around that time. We sort of decided to write those two songs together and those were recorded under my, I believe they were re recorded under my publishing deal, which is all good. 
So then once we were finished with those, this is before I was even thinking about um, Teen, and Brad's going, well, hey, um, I'm about to put out Guilt Flake, and I really like these two songs we wrote. Can I put those on Guilt Flake? And I said, well, of course you can, Brad. <laughs> You're Brad. And, and, you know, to have those tunes next to the other tunes on that record, which I, I, I love that record. I, mm-hmm. That's a, a Desert Island disc for me, too. To get included on that record was kind of a cool thing. So that, the thing about that particular track is it's the same track, really. Okay, yeah, they're very similar. It's the same track, uh, except that mine has a little more embellishments on it. You, and if you listen to them, you'll notice that it's pretty much the same track. It's me on drums, him on bass. It's pretty much him and me playing everything on that record. We sort of switched the harmony parts. Uh, when he's doing my harmony part, I'm doing his harmony part on either one. But, mm-hmm. but that's my melody, man. I did write that melody. Sweet. Those are his words, but that's my melody. The choice of Miss July, we like the way it sang. That was the main thing. But what happens when you start singing a line like that, then you have to justify using it. You know that. Yeah, and then later, Miss July, that part two, it, it sings well there. That was where the line started was from there because it sounded so good and, and for that nice long note. On Umteen, which came out in 1997, Brad engineered and co-produced with you, yep. and it was released on Steve Earle's now-defunct E-squared label. Yep. It had an awesome cover, just gorgeous, uh, the power pop style. And you wrote all the songs yourself except for the three that you co-wrote with Brad Jones, which are Miss July, Dig Down Deep, and To See All. I see you in dream life, you wear a thousand faces woman by the river little brown skin girl seem like you know me but there's never conversation the scenery keeps changing and I lose you in this world to see all to see all I need to be in your life and to feel To See All has a, actually that's more of a loop that we made that's a combination of Indian and Caribbean drums. It's kind of, I, I, I finally played it for a percussion. He said, that's not a, that, that's not a real anything. You made that. It's like, those, those drums, you would never hear those drums played by one person at the same time. I like, yeah, guess what? You're right. So busted. <laughs> well, it, it's unique and it sounds great. Yeah, I mean, that's why we liked it. So. I also like the song On Earth Again. It's a mellow, slow arpeggio, acoustic guitar. Uh, the vocal's very upfront. Great lyric, nice verb. Oh, my dreams Coming up to nothing Now it seems Can't even get to sleep Yeah, that was one of those things that it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a song that's just sort of happens super late at night. 
there's a there's a certain ennui that happens around three or between three and four in the morning if you've had a long night, you know, sitting there not sure what you're doing there. My one regret is that uh, Steve Selbush, who plays guitar, uh, played guitar for me for a long time in Memphis and played on the Dwight record. His dad, Sid Selbush, did a recording of that and was going to cover it, although he decided not to. But yeah, it's one of those tunes that's hard to place it in the set. Let's put it that way. You out nirvana Nirvana on Off My Mind, and I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek because it, it's not a Nirvana song at all, but you start with a very nice, soft dynamic, and then the chorus, uh, Gotta get you off my mind. Yeah. Super, super hard. Love, oh baby, wish I knew just what you mean by that. Yes, no. Maybe it's all changing at the drop of a hat. Take your time, please don't take too much more of mine. 'Cause if it's not love, then baby. Well, yeah, I, um, and I'll cop to it. That was um, that was the direct result of hearing Nirvana. Oh, it was. I didn't really think that. I was. Oh yeah. Okay. That was one thing that I love about that band. Um, even as it was sort of overtaking everything in the early '90s, was all of a sudden the dynamics were something that was important to people. I really was trying to do just that to see if I could out Nirvana, Nirvana, just as you put it. You know. It's better. I really like that song. Thank you very much. Anything you say, the melodic leaps. Are really interesting and it rocks out really well. And another time, I also enjoyed that one. Anything to comment about those two? Well, the only thing I'll say about anything you say is that that is my direct attempt at doing back of a car. <laughs> my big star. Hanging off the edge of the world. But yeah, that's another tune that I always sort of found to be a touchstone for me in, in terms of rock. I like the, the big, clean, powerful guitars of Big Star, so I wanted to try that, but maybe fuzz it up a little bit. Um, and, then, and then another time is really just that's a tune that's sort of a sleeper tune. It's one that I don't you know, I don't play a lot, but I, when I play it, it sort of has a certain kind of a dark resonance for me that I find kind of appealing. It's sort of weird compared to the other songs because it's open D. Um, because really, uh, Umpteen is the op- is my is my open G record, and Dwight's the open D record. So for that tune. Oh, that's great. Me. Mm-hmm. 
In 1997, Swan Dive recorded an album called You're Beautiful. Bill Domain was a previous guest on our show, and this is produced by Brad Jones. And Bill Domain told us in the show, I picked out the song Beautiful Excuse, and I said, you know, that musical introduction is so interesting. After the chorus, it comes right back to the intro, and instead of landing on tonic, it lands on this stacked chord. So um, he says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that whole human radio sound of Ross Rice that did that. So arranging-wise, you were right there on that keyboard, eh? Oh, yeah. There was a nice period of time there where I was sort of lurking about Alex the Great and managing to uh, get, get pulled into different sessions. I was sort of hot on Brad's list for a while. I was in town. I was around. I could play a lot of different instruments. I got to play on Tommy Womack's record, which is uh, played drums on Positively Nana, which is one of my greatest achievements ever. That was an interesting period of, of time for me because I got to um, participate in a lot of stuff. So, um, and the other thing that was kind of interesting is that I was doing a record for Sony at Miyako Shinohara. This was around the same time that um, the Swan Dive was having their hot streak over in Japan. Mm-hmm. There was opportunities for us to sort of work together, and there was actually an interest in me right, helping write a song with Swan Dive. And I was like, absolutely. And, and so Bill was getting down with that. We got together. And in this case, it was another situation where I came up with a lot of the music and he did the lyrics. Because those are my chords for sure. <laughs> those, Bill, Bill, Bill is way too suave to do those chords, man. He's too suave. <laughs> um, those were definitely my big old blocky uh, uh, nights and stuff. You know my whole shit, Dave. You got it down now, man. So all good. <laughs> I love it. It's one of my favorite Swan Dive songs. So you also, during that period, did some work with Amy Rigby, who was a, also a previous guest. Any comments on working with her? Uh, she's just so great, man. I was just sort of really fortunate to be around Alex at the same time that a lot of really wonderful artists were working with Brad. And so I, I sort of got pulled into his orbit for a bit there. Um, and that gave me some opportunities to play with some really wonderful people like Amy. When you do sessions with, with people like Amy or, or Jill Sobiel, another artist I got to work with over there, um, a lot of it has to do with the way that Brad produces. You really have this sort of almost a family atmosphere where you have a collection of musicians that are in the room together and talking to each other. And, and, and Amy and Jill are very strong artists, but they open themselves up to, to a lot of possibilities. As a result of that, I think we get to special places with those records. And the artists can also find some nice parts that they, they're not aware of. It was not your typical sort of Nashville thing where you, it, you have to come up with your own part and there's very well understood limitations of what that part should be i mean and, and, and alex the great during that time it was very non-nashville in the sense that there was much more of a of a collaborative family atmosphere so yeah lots of fun playing playing on those records in 2006 you put out your second solo album there was quite a bit of time between your last album and this one so 1997 to 2006 and you had a new group of songs ready. You felt like, hey, this is not a human radio album. This is a more personal stuff. Well, that was kind of a situation where um, I was at home. I had some tunes I was, I was writing that I felt pretty good about. And I was just sort of sitting at home kind of miserable going, I mean, I kind of have a band, sort of a trio thing I'm doing on, on Thursday nights. Just a regular gig. I'm, uh, my production thing's kind of falling apart. I wasn't, you know, things weren't going so hot. I just thought, you know, what can I do about it? And I'm sitting there looking at my phone book and I look at my phone book and I see Paul Worley's name. He was the guy that sort of discovered us the first time with human radio. He was the guy that got it going. And he's also responsible for the Dixie Chicks, uh, Big and Rich, uh, Lady Annie Bellum. I mean, as far as Nashville's concerned, he is, he's golden. And I looked down at that number and I picked up my phone and I called Paul Worley and Paul Worley answered the phone. 
because that was the one and only time that Paul Worley answered the phone for, <laughs> for many, many years for me. So that was sort of a strange, miraculous moment where I actually got right to him. And I, so I, and I talked to him. I said, hey, Paul, I've got some songs. Uh, I need some money to record them. And I just, I just said it right out loud. I said, I'm not even going to candy coat it. I'm just going to say, you know, forget it, get off my phone, go home. And I said, and I said listen, um, can I drive over to Nashville and play you these songs and, and talk to you about it? Because I don't need much. And, I, and he said, sure, okay, yeah, why not? He thought it was kind of funny. So, so I drove over, got my appointment, I drove over, I brought my guitar, and it was one of those things where I just actually stood in front of him at his desk and played my guitar. I played um, Revolution, I played Blind Man, and I played, um, I think I played Beautiful Ghost. Did you play Blind Man with an amp? Um, no, I did it with on acoustic. That's who wrote that. No way. Yeah, yeah. Because it would be totally different that way. Yeah, but it's not, it's still pretty heavy. It's a big open D chord, so I gave him the full Monty on that, and so I gave him the, those those three tunes, and he was, uh, and he was like, "Okay, how much do you think you need?" And I was I, at that moment, I thought, "Geez, I should have doubled this number I was thinking about at this time because I didn't expect this." But I told him what I thought I needed, which wasn't much, you know, and uh, and he and he wrote me a check for that. So I I went home and I. I went ahead and realized I still needed to write three or four more more songs for this record because I, I it was a rather rather bold move on my part since I didn't really quite have a full record yet, um, which is also why it probably the record doesn't sound quite complete. It doesn't have the completeness I think that Umpteen has. It's sort of there's some tunes on it that maybe sound like they did were shoehorned into it a bit, but um, but yeah, that was kind of that got it going. And then I I ran out of money of course, and then I managed to find someone else to help me finish it. And Don Mann over at Memphis Records made that happen, and I'm forever in his debt for that. Some great songs on there. Hard Times for the Revolution is a hard rockin' with a high hard vocal. Being angry at the world was much more fun. The establishment and the bourgeoisie and the government was up against me. Leary, Hoffman, Shape of Fire, kicking big stuff on guns with a flower. Things are getting strange again. Mr. Anti-Sunshine or Mr. We Above It All. Yeah, you got messed up like it was something to believe in. I love it.
Over Arizona surprised me because I'm not a country fan. It has a country tinge, but it's really more pop and rock based, and it's beautiful. Well, thank you. That's that's uh, actually we're going a little more for the George Harrison slide effect. Any other things about recording the album that you want to share? Yeah, that was a that particular record though is is extremely special to me because of the musicians on it. Um, the guitar player Steve Selvage, who I mentioned earlier, who is now the guitarist for the Hold Steady, also plays with Bash and Pop. Um, Tommy mm-hmm. Stinson sometimes when he does that, um, and recently did a gig with Los Lobos. Uh, how about that? Steve's uh, just one of those guitar players. I, I was very fortunate to have uh, access to him. He was in a group called Big Ass Truck that I produced as well. Uh, and, but the drummer, the drummer was a man by the name of Harry Peel, who passed away a couple of years ago. I think one of my favorite drummers of all time in the, in the whole wide world. Uh, and, and that record really is his record. All the drumming is him. He's uh, just a, was a magnificent person, a fantastic musician. Um, making that record was special because we, we, we did that in Memphis pretty much uh, on the floor. Not a lot of overdubs. And, and then the overdubs were recorded in a magical spot that we found downtown. Uh, in a studio space that we didn't know existed that was sort of a shoebox tiled room that we found was the perfect place to record guitar. Just a lot of really wonderful, uh, happy accidents and just people that, um, that, you know, don't, that we won't get to hear on records again, got to be on that record. So yeah, that record has some very special mojo for me on it. Um, it, There's a certain sense of incompleteness to it to me, but I'll stand by those songs. That that record is generally available, as uh, whereas Umpteen is not. I'm going to work on trying to make Umpteen more available again because I'm pretty sure that I am contractually um, able to do that at this time. I would love it. And it's got a bonus track on it that uh, is a favorite of mine and a lot of other people, um, Favorite Waste of Time by Marshall Crenshaw. Oh, yeah. I can't find it anywhere. It's not on YouTube or anything, so I haven't heard it. I've only got the, um, the digital tracks that uh, we talked about. Well, that's the Japanese version only. Ah. Yeah, that was one of the nice things that also happened just for a moment is that uh, Sony Japan picked up on Umpteen and, and did a, a quick release on it. And when they did that, to add a little extra bonus, they um, asked me to go ahead and do a cover tune, pick, pick a cover tune, and I, I, I picked that one. Twenty sixteen Human Radio is back. And they do an album called Samsara. And I, I went to my Merriam-Webster on my phone and it defines Samsara as the indefinitely repeated cycles of birth, misery, and death caused by karma. <laughs> the way we sort of think of Samsara is, is just the, the physical world that we're always trying to get, a, get beyond. Or okay. somehow. That's, we were trying to be more generic than that. We didn't want to overplay the misery on that. <laughs> Good. No, it's not a miserable record. There's actually a lot of celebration. I thought so too. This came out 26 years after the first Human Radio album, eh? Is that right? Yeah, how about that, huh? Uh, all the original band members came back. Um, 
You produced it. Yep. Five-way songwriting credits on every song. Yep. Engineered by six people, not just five. Yeah, it takes six engineers in, in Nashville, y'all. <laughs> uh, how is the experience of creating this album and this music different other than what I just mentioned from the first time around in 1990? Oh, well, completely different. For the first time, a lot of the process was coming from without, you know, from this idea of having a record deal with Columbia and having David and David and being in, uh, being in Ocean Way out in Los Angeles. In this case, everything came from the inside out. So the process of writing the songs was just getting together and just putting a, a, a mic and Omni in, in the middle of the room and playing and, and just jamming and coming up with ideas and everybody having song ideas that they threw into the pot. And we would just develop things um, there on the spot and then record them. And then I would take a lot of those and rearrange things and then bring those back. And we, we just would keep working on things until we actually had working music. And then once we had that going on, then I, I did write the lyrics because None of those guys wants to do that. That's, that's always been my job, <laughs> which is why I get to boss them around just a little bit. I got to go backwards here for a second. So obviously you did this as a collaborative effort, but um, did you just say, hey guys, I'm going to call you up on the phone, let's make an album, or did you all start playing together f and find that you might have an album in you? Well, we, had a, we did a, a brief reunion gig. Uh, there was a friend of ours that um, was raising money for an operation. And so, uh, they, and they asked me if I'd come back down. For, I was living in New York, and if I'd come down and, and participate in that. And, and I did. We had such a good time uh, playing together that we just started talking about, hey, well, let's just, you know, let's do some stuff, you know, and I might come to town every now and then. If I come to town, let's just get together and, and throw some throw some microphones up and do some stuff. And we just wanted to do stuff together. We wanted to be hanging out. We weren't thinking about bringing the band together back so much as, as just the idea of, of doing something together. When we started realizing that we could actually maybe crowdfund and get enough money to actually do a proper record, then we just, that's what we decided to do. So we went for an Indiegogo and put it out there and came up with some interesting sort of tiers for, for different participation. And we managed to get ourselves uh, a nice little bit of change, about a little over $17,000 came in the door for that. And we figured, well, gee, we can make a record with that much. So we, we went over to our friend Joe Pisapi, uh, who has a studio in Nashville, and we got him to, to engineer uh, in his room just to do the, the basic tracks, uh, which we did there, um, did four days there. Then the rest of the, all the overdubbing, we just went to different locations. I went to the guy's houses, different studios, Tom Bukovac's house. And just pretty much, you know, hodgepodge the rest of the record together, just in different locations. I went to my friend Roger Nichols, um, not the guy from Steely Dan, but the other Roger Nichols. Uh, his, he had a really nice vocal chain, um, so I went and used his uh, uh, nice C20 and got a good vocal mic on that. Then I managed to get my friend Kevin Houston to mix it over in Memphis, over Young Avenue Sound, and it was just getting all my friends involved and and, and the, the, actually what was the neatest part of all about all this was that we decided to do a vinyl run and memphis pressing uh who now does all the stuff for sony oddly enough everybody that worked on the line at memphis pressing who handled our vinyl knew us personally mm. and i don't think that anybody can say that really about their record it was kind of cool because if, if there was at least four people that knew us personally that handled our record and made and took it through that process that had to feel good for me, and that was kind of one of the, the high points, but then it, it all sort of came together in a good way, um, and, the, and the band was happy with it. We, we managed to get Reeves and Gabrels to come and sit in on the tune, which was pretty neat. Um, and so there was, there was a lot of really kind of nice karmic moments that, sort of, that all sort of flowed together and made the record happen. Um, and then we, 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 we serviced all the people that, um, that we crowdfunded, and, and then we, we did some shows, we sold some records, and at this point, we're, we're actually making a profit on this record. So it's kind of crazy. <laughs>
Horizon now is hard-rocking and funky. It's like the faster, happier stepsister of Blind Man from Dwight. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you. That's one that I was sort of messing with for a while, and, and the band picked up and, and made it to something. So it was, it was, that was a good one. Born from the guitar riff then? Yeah. A lot of human radio songs you probably start noticing. You can find sort of the master riff that, that everything's based on. Like, like I Don't Want to Know is a classic example. A lot of times it comes from the bass or the guitar. There's always, always something that you can hum like that. I like the lyric to Follow You Down where you say... A smiling face in a dark, dark place you'll find me In all those moments I was never alone You remind me We were open wide and amazing We faced them down, guns blazing We always did it all That song means a lot to me. That's uh, that's a cautionary tale to people. Woke from a dream where I belong. There's nobody home. The core is gone. The curtains closed. so exposed I've never been more alone One more song, Super Solar Satellite You know, I'm glad somebody, I, I, somebody had to use Copernicus in a tune, and I'm, I am the guy that used Copernicus. <laughs> <laughs> I want to mention a couple covers for people to look up so they know that they're out there. In 2001, you covered Evil Woman on the Jeff Lynne tribute album called Lend Me Your Ears. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 2006 and 2012, you covered a couple of Lennon McCartney tunes, When I Get Home and Please Please Me, for the Fried Glass Onions collections. So you can look those up. They're easy to get. Those are um, fun projects to get involved with. And just, um, yeah, any chance I get to do a Beatles tune and, and get away with it, I'll take it. Okay, so you went through a lot of different periods here. Now you're teaching, but you also have a band. What are you going to do next? Well, right now, I'm mostly just trying to figure out the teaching business and also getting um, students interested in the recording aspect of things here. Uh, it's a fascinating place that I'm working at here um, at RPI. Uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, where we also have some really cutting-edge technology concerning uh, surround uh, and different um, some di- some different uh, environments for uh, integration of sound and artificial intelligence. Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. When Human Radio toured in 1990, we got exactly one college gig, and it happened to be at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. So, yeah, so I ended up getting a job where where we had a gig. Wow, cool. 
Well, Ross, it's been so fun to talk to you. So thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Dave, and thanks for having me. It's good to, it's good to talk songwriting with some folks for a change. It's been, it's been a while. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 14 with Ross Rice. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the show, consider giving us a review at Apple Podcasts. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.